Joining me now is my favorite sports business consultant and uh, all-around smartest guy in the room, Andy Dolich on the left coast. Uh, how are you, Andy Dolich? I'm great, Stan. I just think that's an oxymoron, my favorite sports marketing consultant. Yep. I'm going to use that. All right, good. You you should put that on your business card, say your favorite. So when you hand it to somebody, it'll be saying, I'm your favorite uh, sports well, Hey, coach. listening to Jim Gentile talk about Sandy Koufax, who's my number one sports hero, and thinking, you know, he was also a great basketball player, which a lot played, of people I don't think know about. Played at the and University I, of Cincinnati, right? That's right. I think Ed Jucker was the coach then. And you, I think Sandy played one year for the Bearcats baseball team. Can you imagine yeah. some kid coming out of Ohio going, oh, who's that pitcher on the mound? And Jim was talking about how wild he was before. Uh, he found the yacker, and life changed for a lot of people. You know, it's interesting. The late Joe Durham, and I don't know if you're familiar with him. He was an early one of the early African Americans to play in the big leagues. He recounted stories in the batting cage where the the manager Paul Richards and whoever was equivalent to the batting coach, and that was fascinating to hear from Gentile that there weren't any batting coaches back then. Uh, but they tied him up with rope and yanked the rope on him like he was an animal of some kind to be teaching him how to stride. And I remember Joe Dorham telling that story. Pretty, you know, crazy. Absolutely. Well, just think that rope should be in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Uh, but, you know, I've seen some exercises done with strides in yep. a lot of sports. Uh, but I didn't, I didn't hear that one. But I mean, in terms of quality class, low key guy, um, sort of, he's, he's sort of like my Jerry West, you know, still as cool today as he was, you know, when he was 26 and four or whatever it was. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're in fact, your Twitter handle is at Kufish, right? Co, it's Co- funny, K-O. Stan, how everybody gets it wrong. Yeah, it's Kofax. Like, that's, right. he- Kuf- that's right. That's right. Kofax. They always go, "What's a Kofish?" <laughs> and I go, um, "No, Kofix. it's a combination of my favorite player of all time, right. Sandy Kofax, right. and what I like to do when I'm not working or doing anything else, and that's fish all around. So, Kofish. That's it. Now, do you actually like to go fishing? Oh yeah, have you not seen my no, photos? No, I did not, no, I did not know that. What kind of fishing oh, what kind of fishing do you like to do? I like to be as far offshore as you can possibly be. I will send you some stuff when we're done with the interview. You can post it on up. All right. I just got back a few weeks ago from Venice, Louisiana. And most people go, I thought Venice was in California yeah. or in Italy. Right. So Venice, Louisiana, for all those people that are tuning in to go, I don't want to hear about a fishing report. I want to talk about sports. Just a quick one. Venice is where all the oil companies, natural gas companies are. Yep. And it's at the tip, the tip of Louisiana. And you go anywhere from 30 to 70 miles out um, because all of these um, rigs are, are literally islands that attract fish. And those fish attract bigger fish. So we were fishing for yellowfin, tuna, wahoo, um, 
marlin and uh, swordfish. It was not a great trip, but I'll yep. send you some pictures of some fish that people think were plastic blow-ups. Who's the Who's the most famous sports figure you ever fished with? Uh, Dusty Baker. Okay. D- Dusty is a fanatical fisherman here, and he's got he got a great life. He's you know he's a special uh, assignment coach for the Giants, but Dusty's son. Uh, Darren, remember that famous picture when he was out there and Bonds lifted him up? There was a play at home play at the ballpark. So Dusty's son plays for Cal Berkeley, pretty good player, uh, baseball. And uh, Dusty fishes wherever he can. I mean, the guy that I probably would have liked to fish with is the great Stan Williams, who was fanatic. Stan Williams. Uh, Ted Williams. Ted Williams. Williams. It's my Dodgers. I got Dodgers on the break. Now, it's it's interesting because that was the one way I was going to end the fishing thing is Boog Powell's a very good friend of mine. Boog Powell fished with Ted Williams one time. Said it was the most unpleasant experience (laughs) that he ever had because he was such a perfectionist. He wouldn't let you just have fun fishing the way you like to fish. He was telling you how to do things and how, you know, um, but but what's fascinating to me about reading about Williams and his love and passion for fishing was the eye-hand coordination necessary to fish. Was It was interesting. His eyesight was so fantastic. And that's one yeah, of the he reasons. Was, he, was, he was a fly fisherman, yeah. and I'm not into fly fishing. Uh, actually, Williams sounds like my brother, my older brother, who taught me how to fish. You, you know, would not have liked it. You would not have yeah. liked to fish with Ted Williams. <laughs> yeah, uh, but I would want to see an expert doing he, what he does. And fly fishing literally is all about eye-hand coordination. Uh, you know, what I do is not quite as sophisticated. Um, so what is so, fly, what is the term fly, fly fishing is what exactly? So you're basically fishing with... Um, you know, uh, a different type of rod. Okay. Um, and you're fishing, the bait is not bait. It's basically artificial flies that okay. basically equal what the trout or salmon um, are eating on the top of the surface of the water. So okay. literally, if I'm using a bait fishing 50 miles in the ocean, it's a bigger fish than what Ted Williams is catching. Okay. And a fly could be, you know, half an inch or an inch long. And it's all about the placement. If you're fishing in the ocean, you're just trolling around or casting it in a much larger area. Fly fishermen are way more sophisticated. So they are, they are, they are enticing the fish to grab their fly. Exactly. Okay, Which I got sounds, you. Also sounds a yeah. Bit it sounds weird, sounds yeah. a little weird. There's no question about it. Hey, <laughs> let's move back into sports for a second. Not that fishing isn't a sport. You wrote a piece for Sports Business Journal, and you sent it to me. Uh, and I I remembered about two and a half months ago. I asked you to be on the show one week, and you said you couldn't be because you were going to this memorial service for right. an old friend of yours, Makio Matsubayashi who was the sports video board pioneer who basically was the father of Diamond Vision, correct? Correct. Anybody that's at a sporting event, indoor and outdoor, and watching Kiss Cam or seeing a replay or loving the stuff that they're seeing, um, it was Mikio Matsubayashi who in the late late 70s and early 80s 
working for Mitsubishi from Japan that basically saw the future, did the first board at Dodger Stadium in 1980. And as they say, the rest is history. I think there's something like 35,000 boards up in venues, both pro and college. There's lots of competition. But I was lucky enough to meet Mikio early on because we wanted one of those boards at the Oakland Coliseum when we were building the A's into a contender. And I did, uh, we did a, a portable board actually until we had the money and the sponsorship to put in a permanent board. But it's one of those stories, Stan, that people really don't know about. And I don't know if they, you know, when they're at a ball game, look yeah, at the video board and just, all the advancements that have taken place and go, I wonder who started that. Right. Well, it's, it's just Mikio a piece of the furniture. It's just a piece of the furniture. Now you, you use, exactly. you use the word there is really interesting. You said we had a, 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 like a mobile board until we could get the sponsorship dollars. How much different would sports be today? Had the boards look they're, they're They've been around for 35 years now or 30 plus years. How different, though, would sports be, the, the dollar figures that we'd be talking about, without the ancillary revenue that they've helped bring into sports? Well, one of the uh, radio guys out here, Gary Radnich at KNBR, when I'm on with him, always introduces me. You know, here's the, one of the guys that brought entertainment to the ballpark. <laughs> well, you know, that isn't necessarily true. I love it, but Bill Vec and many, many others uh, basically started doing that. Minor League Baseball, as you know, is the leader in trying uh, new marketing programs. But the part about the video board and what I've seen over the years, it is an immersive type of entertainment. And people of all ages, whether you're coming to the game with your three-year-old or it's grandma and grandpa, you know, on Kiss Cam, everybody loves it. You know, it's not a debate like I hate that or I don't want to drink beer or no, I don't want the $20 crab sandwich. But when something is on the video board, um, it's spectacular. And when we think about our live stand, it was really one of the first options of replay, replay, replay. Now we've mm-hmm. got a digital world that everybody is looking down with their earbuds on about to be hit in a crosswalk by an 18-wheeler. And what are they doing? They're replaying some inane Instagram or YouTube video. Right. And really, when you think about it, it all started at the ballpark. It's, right. it's really, I hadn't put it in that perspective. It's really true. I remember coming out to, to visit David Rubenstein, and now if I came out there, I'd probably st- stay with you for free. But, uh, well, I've got a bad, I've got a bad coincidence tomorrow. You're seeing Ruby uh, Q. I am taking David to the Bay Bridge series at AT and T Park. Oh, that's um, great! That's great. Yes. Yeah, so if you tune into the game and you see a fan being ejected, Stan, it'll probably you'll be know done. which fan that is, right? All right. Uh, but I remember watching, finding it fascinating. Your board was the first. You had dot races, correct? That is absolutely correct, which we got a lot of credit for bringing to the majors. Yep. What did we do? I stole it from the minors. <laughs> did they have the board to have it, though, at the minor league level uh, at that time? No, no, they didn't. But, you know, they they basically were the precursors of what you see of the running presidents and the prop yep. horse and all the other wacky 
characters, uh, but we, you know, we were so advanced when you think about it now in terms of all the magnificent videos and uh, virtual reality and augmented reality and what they're doing on boards, but we had a red, uh, green, and yeah, red, green, and like yellow dot. Yep. And basically had dots racing around on the video board, and people went crazy. And, you know, I think about it when we're talking. I also debuted Pong at the Capitol Center wow. in D.C., and people and I we put controllers at either end. This was when I was with the Capitals. Then we put controllers at either end and gave them to two kids, and they played pong between the periods. It was better than watching the Zambonis clean the ice. That's that's bizarre. <laughs> that's bizarre. It's interesting though in Baltimore now. I mean, this is thirty. It's probably thirty-five years, thirty-seven years, and I still remember the dot races about fifteen years ago in Baltimore. SK, the hot dog company kind of yep. purchased the sponsorship and they have ketchup, relish and mustard races, which is the same thing. Only there's big time dollars attached to it. Now the great Bill King, who's in the baseball hall of fame as a broadcaster, we were very lucky to have Bill and Lon Simmons. And I had a great, great relationship with Bill who was, you know, an ultimate Renaissance man, sort of like the current great John Miller, uh, you know, who can talk about anything. But Bill, any time dot racing or any other promotion that I did, yeah. you know, Bill would refer to me as spawn of the devil, man, that's destroying <laughs> baseball. Well, it's, it's interesting because what he did was he made the, he made the freak, freakish activity, the marketing, but he didn't attach. The marketing was simply getting people to the park. Now what you, you guys do or have done for 30 plus years is figure out how to monetize once the people are at the park. And if you look at sports now, that's the next step is you and I've talked about this. Isn't just having stadiums. It's having like little communities where you can monetize having the people come to the park and be in your community. Now. I totally agree with that. But one of the negative parts of ticket pricing, which is stratospheric as the fans know, yeah is that whether it was the Colts or the O's or the Bullets or the Wizards or the Nats, um, a while ago, um, those little neighborhoods in the park, yep. people would know them. You know, They grew up together in the park, mm-hmm. not necessarily that they lived next door to each other in their neighborhood. And now, with secondary ticketing and all the stuff that's happening computer-wise, you turn to the right and the left, and you don't know who the people are. And in some instances, they bought their tickets for a lower dollar figure, and they're not exactly acting like fully grown adults. And you're there with your three kids. It's changed the environment, which I think is a negative that Mm -hmm. doesn't get talked enough about. Uh, yeah, you have a larger audience of you know twenty or thirty or forty thousand in a ballpark in a venue, but that sense of community that you might have had in section C or one thirty two is pretty much going away. We're talking with Andy Dolich, sports consultant extraordinary. He's worked in all four major sports, and he's a consultant uh, even to this day. Andy, the other day I received, I've been a PSL holder and season ticket holder for the Baltimore Ravens since they arrived 
in Baltimore in 1996. The first preseason game that I will be able to attend is probably about August 9th or 10th, somewhere around there. So now it's July 10th. I get a box in the mail just the other day, and I open it up, and I go, oh, this is a really nice box, and it's got the Ravens <laughs> logo in it. And I open it up, and I go, oh, here's schedule, and here's two, two like, credit cards or whatever, a couple lanyards, and I'm fumbling, and I pick up the box, and I shake it. There's no tickets. Um, first of all, what do you think about a team that sends out the tick, the, the ticketless ticket package, but doesn't tell you up front about it, makes no public announcement about it. Is that the right way to handle that? Absolutely not. And you've identified one of the areas, again, I understand progress. I'm working in the world of virtual reality and artificial intelligence, which unfortunately I think we have more of today than ever before, and it's not all that intelligent. Right. Um, But doing away with the actual ticket, I'm a ticket freak. Yep. I've got an incredible collection of tickets for from 45 years. And now, you know, it's all digital. People coming to the park, don't think about it. When you're waiting behind somebody at the airport or at your favorite coffee place and their, you know, phone isn't working correctly with their hashtag. Right. I mean, I literally want to take a baseball bat and beat them to within an inch of their life. <laughs> you know, here's cash. I'll buy your coffee. Now right. get out of line. Right. Um, so the ticket is another sort of historical document. Um, you know, it's going to be my retirement income. I'll just sell all my tickets, you know, from years and years ago. But not to tell you that they're doing it is another example of really poor strategy. Some tactician from, you know, with his master said, hey, it'll be cool and we'll send some useless crap in a box. Yeah, and it's a really fancy, it's a really cool box that I'll throw away pretty soon. Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, it's like, thank you. And you're also paying 190% more for those tickets that, than you paid 10 years ago for you to get this real spiffy box with a lanyard uh, that's totally useless because you don't have a goddamn ticket. So let me ask you a question. What we, if you were sort of advising a team that was going ticketless, uh, and again, you might say, somebody might say, a 25-year-old might say to me, a 66-year-old, oh, come on, relax, you got a month. But it would have really been nice for me to know, like in June, that, hey, a press release comes out, Ravens are going ticketless, Go to this link and watch wh- how you you use your your new ticketless entry or something like that. Right. I would have also given you the option or anybody else, and this isn't just an age divide, but that's an easy mm-hmm. sort of default mechanism. And I'd say, Stan, you've been a fan since X. I want to know what you've done. We should know your favorite players. And here, if you just email us or send this card back. You know, we're going to print your tickets for you. Yeah. Uh, they might not necessarily be used at a game, although you could, but we're going to give you the tickets because yep. the amount of money that people, the teams are spending on printing tickets in terms of saving that money, it literally is mouse meat. And I think it's an affront when you don't even give people the opportunity to have a ticket, which was, which was part of the ballpark experience. 
What would you say, though, if they said that we spend what's really sounds like one of the culprits here is the ability to print your tickets yourself? You know, uh, they say that the counterfeit issue is such a gigantic issue now that they actually have to have a lot of extra help on game days to sort through when there's problems arise with counterfeiting uh, printed tickets. Well, as we know, the Russians are behind this thing, (laughs) clearly. And, you know, Putin has been a big uh, sports fan for many years, which everybody knows about. I I think it's laughable. You know, uh, is there ticket scalping? Yeah, when Murray's Tickets was doing it, you know, 35 years ago, Spuddy, need to. Um, Now, with um, the technology that exists, um, UPC codes and all of that, you can get beyond that. It's just another one of those sort of brainless, we're going into the modern age of analytics and metrics in every way you yep. can. And if I were working for a team, of course you want to be the most technologically advanced. But I think it's also important to hold on to what made the experience great. It's just like the ongoing debate Let's make baseball quicker. Mm-hmm. So why don't we just play three innings and, and stop kidding ourselves? Well, you know, some of the stuff is just so patently ridiculous to make you laugh. If people have been loving this game for, you know, a hundred plus years, yes, there have to be some changes. You know, I'm a big advocate of banning Velcro so you don't see a guy spending 45 seconds retightening the gloves that he tightened before he got into the batter's box. Andy Dolich has uh, been our guest. Andy, we, we hardly talk baseball this time around, but always a pleasure to talk to you. I learn something every time. Here's what I learned today. Listen to Diamond Jim Gentile talking about, you know, his time in the minors and number of at-bats. And I was thinking, you know, his mentality of just go up there, keep doing it. It'll pay off for you. We live about 30,000 days, right? If we live into our 80s, are we going to have some bad days, Stan? You and I have both experienced some bad days, but for 30,000 of them, you know, make 29,000 of them really great. So for anybody that's listening in to you, Stan, uh, enjoy the day. Thank you, my friend, my fishing friend. I'll talk to you later, Cofish. You got it. Bye. All right. He's out. Andy Dolich.